Our topic today is not exactly precisely brand new. It is a little bit of a different angle. Um, for those who, by the time you get about two-thirds into this sermon, say, well, I've kind of heard some of that before, there is a reason, though, why there's a little bit of redundancy on my part, and I believe on Pastor Gaiman's part as well, on topics such as this. It's just that it, 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 and I guess it, it, it's simply that we think it's very pressing and very important, and I think to, in some respects, he and I would probably both agree that we're not confident that everyone shares our enthusiasm and our commitment in this area. And so if you do, uh, God be praised. We're glad to know that. And if you don't, I pray that you will, with an open mind, consider what we have to offer today, what I'm going to share with you. So the title of the lesson this morning is this. Do you have a tribe? Do you have a tribe? As members of the 12 tribes of Israel here this morning, and most everyone in the congregation knows that they are a physical and genetic Israelite. And most of us here in this congregation probably will associate ourselves with one of the 12 tribes, or 13 if you will, tribes of Israel that are represented by the banners to the best of our historic understanding. But that's not exactly the direction I'm going, although that, that does play a part of it. It, I've been reflecting on what the word tribe means, and I'm going to look at that. We're going to look at what the word tribe meant in the Old Testament and in terms of the social and cultural and historic context of what it meant to be a member of a tribe in the Old Testament. But I also want to take that concept and I want to apply it in a more modern context in a New Covenant way, in a New Testament way, and in fact a very modern and American way. And a way that might apply to you and I here this morning, in this house this morning. What might that mean in a more concrete way? Rather than a historical abstract way that is, is, is connecting to something that is, has roots thousands of years ago, what does that mean to you day by day, week by week, and year by year? What does that word mean And is there any application to it? So bear with me as I try to build some concepts here. Now we're going to go to the book of Judges for our beginning point. And the beginning point is going to be found in the book of Judges chapter number 4. So I would like everyone to open your Bibles to Judges chapter number 4. We're going to read some verses out of Judges 4. And then we're going to read some verses out of Judges chapter 5. And I'm going to ask you here in a moment, as you find your Bibles, I'm going to ask here in a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand and read some of this with me together. Now, I think many of you, as we read these verses out of chapter 4 and 5 of the book of Judges, many of you will recall the general story. This is the story of Deborah, of Barak, and how God raised up Barak and Deborah to be the leaders to deliver them from some folks in the land of Canaan that were oppressing the children of Israel. You'll recall many elements of this story. So let's begin. And if you would, like I say, if you would be standing, and I'm asking you to do this in honor of the Word of God. This is God's Word, and And it's important that we always remain connected to Scripture. That is one of the paramount duties of every Christian, is to try to be as connected to the Bible as you reasonably can. So let's begin by reading Judges 4, 1 through 10. We'll start with that, and then we'll go on a little bit further. Here we go. In unison. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, when Ehud was dead. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Harishoth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had nine hundred chariots of iron, and twenty years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah, between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, 
Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun. And I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude. And I will deliver him into thine hand. And Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor. For the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah rose and went with Barak to And Barak called unto Zebulun Naphtali to Kedesh, and he went up with ten thousand men at his feet, and Deborah went up with him. Now, if you'll drop down to verse 13, we'll kind of jump ahead just a little bit. Now let's read together 13 through 16, which tells us uh, the conclusion, well, the initial conclusion of these events. Here we go, 13 to 16, same chapter together. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people were with him, from Harasheth of the Gentiles unto the river of Kedesh. And Deborah said unto Barak, Up for this day into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor, and 10,000 men after him. And the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away in his feet. But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Harasheth of the Gentiles. And all the host of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword, and there is not a man left. Thank you, and you may be seated. So let's just recap the story very quickly. So Sisera was raised up as uh, in God's providence to uh, persecute the children of Israel. And after a number of years, God said, okay, we've had enough. I guess the children of Israel learned their lesson. And so God raised up Deborah and Barak and they went out to war. And the long and short of it is uh, God delivered the Israelites and Sisera and his armies were decimated. They were destroyed. They were wiped out and the children of Israel were delivered. Now, many of us know this story. We could talk about how um, Barak was not as brave as maybe a commanding general ought to be. And he said, I won't go unless you go with me. And it took a lady to stiffen the spine of this general and said, I will go with you onto the battlefield. A woman had to accompany him to the battlefield in order for him to be brave enough to do what God had said. I'm with you and you can go do it. So we could talk about the courage of ladies, but that's not the topic today. And that's great, and that's good. And ladies, you're to be commended, and I pray that all of you will be ladies of courage and commitment like Deborah was. We could talk about the miracle of God, how God drew them into the river, into this valley near the river Kishon and destroyed them. But that's not our topic today either. Today we're going to be, remember, I, I, I've asked you the question, what is your tribe? And we're going to be looking at that word tribe. There are some details that were offered in that story that you may have missed that have to do with tribes. Now, before we can get further into this little topic and what this business of tribes has to do with this story, we've got to read a little bit out of chapter number five. So I'm almost done with you for now, but I'm going to ask you to stand here in a moment once again. And we're going to go to chapter five, and we're going to read about a dozen verses. Now, as we read the verses in chapter five, we're going to get a recap of the same story in a different way. Now, the, what we just read was a narrative. What we're going to read is a poem or a song. It is known as the Song of Deborah. It again recounts the same story in a poetic way. But it contains more information than what is in the account we just read. Does that make sense? So as we read the second account now of the same story or at least a portion of the same story. And actually, there's more to the story we haven't gotten to. We didn't get to the great part where the, the general of the evil side, this evil general Cicero runs away, and some lady rams a tent peg through his skull. I don't have time for everything, so we just have to skip over that part, Ethan. Sorry. I know that's, that's cool and colorful and 
gory and really excites the imagination to all that. But anyway, we don't have time for that. Let's go to this next chapter, though, and read an account, the general account of the same battle, the same story. But as we read this, look for clues about something to do with tribes that is found in this poetic account known as the Song of Deborah of the same story. Are you ready? So let's go to chapter 5. And if your feet aren't sore, if you don't mind, please be standing once again for the second portion of our primary text. And we're going to start at verse 12. And we're going to read down to 26. Are you ready? Now we're in Judges 5, 12 through 26. Here we go. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, utter a song. Arise, Barak, and lead thy captivity captive, thou son of Abinuem. Then he made them that remaineth to have dominion over the nobles among the people. The Lord made me have dominion over the mighty. Out of Ephraim was there a root of them against Amalek. After thee, Benjamin, among thy people, out of Maker came down governors, and out of Zebulun that handled the pen of the writer. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, even Issachar and also Barak. He was sent on foot into the valley. For the divisions of Reuben there were great thoughts of heart. Why abodest thou among the sheepfolds to hear the bleedings of the flocks? For the divisions of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Gilead abode beyond Jordan. And why did Dan remain in ships? Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. Zebulun and Naphtali were a people that jeoparded their lives unto the death in the high places of the field. The kings came and fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan and Taanach by the waters of Megiddo. They took no gain of money. They fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. The river of Kishon swept them away. That ancient river, the river Kishon, O my soul, thou hast trodden down strength. Then were the horse hoofs broken by the means of the prancings, the prancings of their mighty ones. Curse ye, Miraz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof, because they came not to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Blessed above women shall jail the wife of Heber the Kenite be. Blessed shall she be above women in the tent. He asked water, and she gave him milk. She brought forth butter in a lordly dish. She put her hand to the nail, and her right hand to the workman's hammer. And with the hammer she smote Sisera. She smote off his head when she had pierced and stricken through his temples. All right, thank you. You may be seated, and that's it for now. Now, what you find in that story is a recap of essentially the same events written in a different style. But you'll notice that there are a number of the various tribes of Israel that were mentioned in one way or another. Now, what's all that about? What is all that about? Well, let me tell you what it's about. And this is going to lead us into our discussion as we consider the concept of what a tribe is and how that all works and what that means for us today. Okay, what, it is, what is this? What it means is this. It turns out... that this story has some interesting features about tribal instincts in action. But before I get into this story now, and we're going to come back and analyze that, I want to just give you a few general thoughts about what the word tribe means. Now, let's start with God's created social orders. How has God organized human society? Well, this is how it's organized. And as much as humanity today thinks we can get away from this, we cannot, and we will not, and every attempt to get away from it end up in catastrophe of one form or another. The original and smallest social unit is the family. It begins with marriage. It begins with a man and a woman in marriage. So here's marriage. It's our foundational stone of human society. It's our beginning social unit. Out of marriage, a man and a woman, one flesh, made one flesh by God's design, out of that unit comes the next social structure, which is completely natural and pretty obvious, and that is the family. Next, we have the family. This involves more people. Now we have children. So we have the beginning social structure, marriage, 
Out of marriage comes the next very natural social structure, which is family. We might today call that a nuclear family. Out of that comes the next one, which is also very natural, a natural extension that most of us can easily relate to. We may call this sort of an extended family. An extended family, this is one family that time has passed now to create your uncles and your aunts and your cousins, and this becomes the next social unit. Now that extended family might get rather large, and now we begin to find other words that describe that. We might call, sometimes people, you might use the word clan to describe that. All right, so we have a marriage, we have a nuclear family, and we have an extended family or clan. The next unit, which is natural, and you're gonna see this in scripture, you can read the scripture from the front to the beginning, but especially high profiled in the Old Testament, is the word we're looking at today, the tribe. Now the tribe, we have a marriage, we have a family, we have an extended family, which is many families, a number of families create the extended family, and a number of extended families now create what we're going to call a tribe. Now I hope all of you can follow on. Now can you see that this is a natural progression in the way things naturally just grow and develop as we move up in the social order? How many of you can see that? Raise your hand if you think you follow and this makes some sense to you. All right, now if we move up the ladder one more notch, out of, an, of the tribe, if we have several tribes or many tribes, we have the next, next natural order. The next natural order, if you can get there, is the nation. A nation. All right? A nation is many tribes that, have, that are cooperating one with another to create the next order up here, a nation. That's what a nation really is, biblically and naturally, in, in accordance with natural law. A nation isn't necessarily just a bunch of people who all live within a certain borders. Now, we call that a nation in modern times, but as you can kind of see, that kind of things get pretty mixed up, don't they, under that uh, formulation. Now, with these thoughts in mind, let's talk a little bit more about this business and, and the word tribe. The word tribe in Hebrew... Uh, is mata, which is a branch, a rod, a staff for ruling, for, ro for support, for walking. And a tribe is really kind of an, an important functional unit I want to really focus on today. And it, uh, that takes us, to, now when you, you hear the word tribe, I want you to think in terms of tribe as it's used in the Old Testament. Um, we could talk about, you know, Indian tribes, the Apache or the uh, Kiowa or whatever, but, and, and that kind of sort of fits our discussion as well. But that's not really what we're, we want to kind of keep our conversation biblical if we can, because I think it's going to get us the truth of the matter more quickly. As we consider the word tribe, though, what is tribe? What is a tribe and what is tribalism? Well, tribalism could be I want you to think of tribalism as this thought. Tribalism is a sense where you have a loyalty to your own people that's greater than your commitment to a larger group such as a nation. Now you're going to find in the Old Testament there's a lot of tribalism. The Old Testament Israelites were very, very tribal. Now we don't always think about that and observe that and notice that. Now sociologists and historians are going to say there's different types of tribes. And there really, I guess you could say there are. But a central feature of a, of, a, of, a, of a social organization on this level of a tribe is this. Within a tribe, you're going to either know somebody personally, or you're probably going to know of them. That is, you know someone who knows them. Now, in a family, you know everybody. In an extended family, you know everybody. In a tribe, you may not know everybody, but you probably know someone who knows them. Now, this business about what a tribe could be defined in, in history, we have an extended clan, and the bond is your genetic affiliation. You're genetically connected, so you're a tribe. You're into this big, huge, massive clan, and people who like the word clan might like think, well, like Scottish clans, I'm a Campbell, and there's 5,000 Campbells who live in Western Scotland, or I'm a McGregor, or whatever. It's a clan. Well, in a sense, that's a tribe. So the word clan gets used interchangeably. So, another one, though. Historically, I want you to imagine a, a, a well-rooted village. I want you to imagine in your mind, if this was the year 1200, and you lived in a medieval village, 
that had lived in that area for several hundred years. That becomes something of a tribe. In terms of its function, as a functional unit, it becomes a tribe of its own. And in fact, in a medieval village, if it's stable over several hundred years, guess what? After a while, everybody's kind of related anyway aren't they? Because they stay right there, they don't move around, and everybody gradually starts to intermarry. And so everybody is not only just geographically within these boundaries, but you have a real uh, ethnic and you have a really real strong familiar band. Now there is a third one, and that is a, 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 there is a religious bond, a strong religious bond. There is a healthy, strong religious bond. It is what you might call a congregation. And this bond is primarily spiritual, but like a, any a stable congregation will also in time also grow familial roots as different people intermarry and you have create these other bonds. So let's go a little further. The, the word I'm trying to focus on here, and I, and I know I might be a little pedantic, but essentially a tribe is a functional unit that's bigger than a family and smaller than a nation. All right, so let that thought settle into your head as I build on this. It's bigger than a family, it's smaller than a nation. It, it might work out well, and it might not work out well. It turns out that the idea of a tribe has got its pluses and minuses. Under some conditions, uh, a tribal functional unit might turn out to be a good way to function in life, and it might not be. It could be parochial, it could breed... Uh, sort of a narrow view. It could be filled with nepotism. You could end up having connections that you make, and so it may not always work out perfectly well. But it also, in times of danger, in times of, of insecurity, tribes can be a bulwark of security to which people must resort. Now, what happens is this in history. This functional unit that I'm calling a tribe Excellent leadership is going to allow nations to grow out of tribes, and poor leadership is going to result in national fracture and a reversal or a return to tribalism. Now go back to Deborah and Barak. All right, so are you ready for this now? So let's go back to the story we read a few minutes ago. Did you notice all the war the tribes that were mentioned there? I want to, if you go through it and read it very closely, here's what you're going to discover. When the children of Israel were attacked in the land of Canaan, in, in chapter 4 and 5, it discovered that some of the tribes helped fight, and some didn't. Now, why is that? Let me give you a list of the ones that helped. You can check that out by rereading it closely on your own. It turns out, when Deborah and Barak went out to war, the Naphtali fought, Benjamin fought, Zebulun fought, Issachar fought, Manasseh fought, and Ephraim fought. There are three who were expected to fight and refused. Three were expected to show up and help, and they did not. Reuben didn't come to help. Dan didn't come to help. And Asher didn't come to help. There are others that aren't even mentioned at all, like Judah, for example. Now, what does all that mean? It means that we've got some strong tribal instincts that are in action in the children of Israel in the Old Testament. Now let me tell you a little bit more about the book of Judges. You say, well, that's odd, but I, okay, I get it, I get it. So some of the tribes helped fight off the danger, some of the tribes didn't do anything, and some should have come to help because they felt, had an obligation to, but they refused. That's interesting, and it's important. Now let's go to another story in the Old Testament, in the book of Judges. We won't read about it, but you know the story of Gideon. How many remember the story of Gideon? The story of Gideon had a similar tale. The Midianites come. God raised up Gideon. Gideon organizes his army. And if you read closely through the story, it turns out that the people, the tribes that helped Gideon fight the enemy were Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. You can read about this in Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8. So when you've got some time, do that. Read Judges 6, 7, and 8 and find out who helped Gideon. Four tribes helped. One tribe came and helped a little bit, and that was Ephraim. But they did so at great reluctance. They were aggravated, and they didn't really want to, but they finally pitched in. Now, if we go to the next story in the book of Judges, we won't read this because we're pressed for time. 
But how many remember the story of Jephthah? Now, usually when people read the story of Jephthah, they get all caught up in this business of Jephthah being raised up to go and fight the Ammonites, and he makes a rash vow, and it has this whole thing with his daughter. How many remember that story? Well, that's interesting, but that's not our point today. Our point today is that Jephthah had the same problem. He had a, Israel was being attacked. He was looking for the Israelite tribes to come and help, and a lot of them didn't come to help. It turns out that where he was from, the part of Israel called Gilead, they helped. So he had people from Manasseh, they came to help. Some of the people from Reuben helped. Some of the people from Gad helped. Some of the other tribes totally refused. In fact, Ephraim, in the story of Jephthah, was so irritated with the situation, for reasons it's hard for me to understand as I read it, Ephraim was so upset that not only did they refuse to help, after the battle was over, Ephraim attacked Jephthah, and they had a war. And that takes us to that, remember that odd story about, can you pronounce the word shibboleth, and they couldn't pronounce it right, and so they're, oh, your accent's wrong, so you're dead, you know. So, but that, again, I digress. Now, I want to call your attention to an important thought. Because this, what I'm, going to try, I'm trying to explain as an Old Testament reality has a very modern reality as well that I think has great relevance to you and I this morning. And so far you're probably saying, I have no idea what you're talking about and how this has any relevance today. So I'm going to try to explain it, and I'll see if I can do this. But let's look at the Old Testament relevance. It turns out that Israel entered the land of Canaan in about 1400 B.C., give or take a little bit. Israel remained as a collective people living in the land of Canaan for about 900 years, and they exited the land of Canaan in about 586. They were in the land of Canaan for about 900 years. They entered as 12 tribes. Out of that 900 years they lived in the land of Canaan, how much of that time were they a, a unified nation? You may know. Well, you might. It was really, as one unified nation, all the 12 tribes together, all happily working together as a unit, at maximum, you could say, 120. Out of 900 years, they were a unified nation, 120. That was when... And that's being generous. That's when Saul and David and Solomon were kings. That means the vast majority of their time in the land of Canaan, these 12 tribes could not bring themselves together to function as a nation most of the time. They functioned as tribal units. And they came together now and again, kind of, sort of, like we've been reading in Judges, at times of stress, they'd come together for a little while, and some would, and some would, and it was, it was, it was always this jostling of this jealousy, and this envy, and this, this inner working that is really hard for us to kind of wrap our minds around. So, when we recap where we've been so far, the children of Israel couldn't maintain this level of social order. We have the family, we have, sorry, sorry, we have marriage, we have the nuclear family, we have an extended family, and we have tribes, and then if things are going well, the tribes unify themselves into a nice, coherent, functioning nation. Except, in the case of Israel, that didn't work very long. Most of the time, they did not function at the national level well at all. It took them 400 years to get to the point where they said, let's form a nation. And when they did, it worked pathetically under Saul. It worked pretty good under David, although David had a couple little wars, civil wars. They worked pretty good under Solomon, and when Solomon came, it all collapsed. And they reverted to their tribal instincts. And the king that remained, Rehoboam, was left with one good tribe, and one other little bitty one to kind of help out a little, Judah and Benjamin. And the others broke apart and said, we're doing our own thing. 
The other tribes said, hey, we don't want anything to do with you two tribes. Well, did those 10 stay together and work well? It, it worked horrible. They had one terrible king after the next. And they had their own infighting and their own jealousy and their own political chaos. It's a, it's a long and sad story, political chaos of the 10 tribes in the north when their nation just couldn't seem to get their act together very well for a variety of reasons. Now, <clears throat> I'm trying to build this foundation from the Old Testament to make a point. It turns out that there are periods of history when excellent leadership inspires greater unity that leads to prosperity and blessing. And under the David and Solomon, the children of Israel were able to rise above these tribal instincts and they were able to build a really great nation for a period. And under David and Solomon, there was great power and glory and wealth and wonderful things. And we think of this as just this high watermark, and it was, but it didn't last. And when it fell apart, they reverted down from here, this wonderful functioning nation, back to their tribal instincts. Now, I think there's something real and that's important and that's useful for us. I want to shift gears and I want to talk about the United States of America for a few minutes. Now, in my opinion, the United States of America has experienced and is presently experiencing a very similar phenomenon over the last several hundred years. All of you surely know enough American history to know that the United States of America was formed out of 13 colonies. And the 13 colonies, through excellent leadership by our, the founding fathers, George Washington, James Madison, father of the Constitution, John Adams, and so forth, formed a nation. Now, it took a lot of excellent leadership on their part because that union of the 13 colonies, coming to be known as the 13 states, was somewhat uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable enough that between then, over the last 250 years, and now, it was challenged, seriously challenged, at least once in the American Civil War. Now, that union that was formed to build a, a nation, a nation that you know, many of us can look back with with a certain amount of, of, of pride and, 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 and fondness. That union, I believe, is in jeopardy. Now, it's in jeopardy not in this... It, for, in, in, well, let, let's just, let, me just, let me just go back to my, my, my notes here just to try to try to clarify that what, what, what has happened, in my view, in American history. So let me talk to you a little bit about American history. I believe this would probably be true in pretty much every nation, but we're going to look at the United States of America more particularly. So I think even when the United States of America, we have, have always had some strong, what I'm going to call, tribal loyalties. Now those tribal loyalties have always been there, and they're still there today if you look for them. But those tribal loyalties, those tribes, shall we say, and I'm using the tribe a little more loosely now, that word tribe, a little more loosely, but they are essentially the building blocks of the larger unity of a nation. Now, nowadays, when we go out and we think about um, elections and voting, you'll find that co political commentators all use a word called constituency. A constituency is a block of people that a politician must appeal to to come together with another constituency and another constituency and another constituency to build some sort of social and political unity to maintain a larger functioning unit. And that's what national politicians always have to do. They must build on these smaller constituencies that are local. I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember a guy who was the Speaker of the House for many years, a New England politician named Tip O'Neill. 
Tip O'Neill once said famously, all politics is local. What do you mean by that? He understood something. He understood that as a national politician, he couldn't just simply govern as a national politician without regard to what happens to this local constituency, what they think, and this local constituency, and this local constituency, and this local constituency. Now, all these local, quote-unquote, constituencies constitute in our system, in our nation, in our history, they constitute something that is very, could really be called a tribe in a very real sense. Now, in ancient history, the tribes were built primarily upon sort of an ethnic and family affinity, right? That is still largely true today, even in the United States of America right now. But tribes are also built on a re, the second factor in what makes a tribe or this group or this constituency, this functioning unit, is religious conviction, religious persuasion, a religious affinity. So we have, in a sense, we have tribes in American history that are easily identified, and I could think of a number of them I could call forth today that are a smaller block that are one building block out of a larger group that we have been able to put together, or that is, good leaders have been able to put together and to maintain a nation. For example, you could think of, in some sense, you could think of the Mormons as a tribe. Now, continuing on a little bit on American history real quick, just real quick, let me just tell you about some of the well-known constituency in American history that became the units by which our nation was ultimately built. Some of you have heard of Pennsylvania Dutch. Is there anyone here who is part Pennsylvania Dutch? Well, there may be someone who is, comes from a Pennsylvania Dutch background. Well, those Pennsylvania Dutch, they settled in Pennsylvania. They were primarily, my understanding, they're mostly they were German. They settled in Pennsylvania in the 1700s, and they're still there today to a large Amen. degree. They have been sort of a tribe in and of themselves. And in the 17 and 1800s, they were a very coherent, functioning unit in and of themselves. They were their own community, so to speak. Many of you will recall that the Irish who came to America in the 1800s primarily settled in large eastern cities. So there was a large chunk of Irish who lived in New York City. There was a large chunk of them who lived in Boston. There was a bunch of them that lived in Philadelphia. And each of these eastern cities they settled in, they became their own tribe. And they were loyal and committed one to another. And believe me, they watched out for each other, didn't they? And that's relatively well known. But there are many such things, cases. Some of you may not be quite as familiar with this. But here in the, United, in, in the state of Missouri, in the mid-1800s, a large number of German Lutherans settled west of St. Louis in the bottomlands of the Missouri River. Amen. And there they sat in their towns and their communities and their farms, and for the next couple of generations, some of them hardly barely learned how to speak English. Those German Lutherans eventually became the heart of in the, what became in the 1900s the Lutheran Church and created what was known as the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church. Well, now that particular tribal group has somewhat lost some of its uh, impulse. But these are some of the building blocks. Now, why did some of that sort of, did we lose some of that? Now, here's what's happened in American history the last 150 years. And I'm kind of glossing over a lot of things here, but just bear with me. Because the United States, and I know a lot of you are going to say, boy, this, this next statement is going to rattle some of you. <laughs> but because the United States of America, throughout much of the 1800s, throughout, from our formation up until about, say, 1950 or 1960, we had relatively good national leadership. We had relatively good national leadership for about 150 years. And that relatively good national leadership meant that we could do the same thing that the ancient Israelites did under David and Solomon. They took a bunch of fractious tribes, David did, 
and they built a nation. That's what happened in our country. We've had relatively good leadership. They were able to take these various tribal chunks, these various tribal units that had either ethnic, racial, or religious affiliation with one to another that bound them together in this loyal unit we could call a, a tribe, whether they were Irish Catholic tribe or a German Lutheran tribe or whatever the tribe was, bound them together to build a larger unit that functions, that's functioned reasonably well, we call a nation. Now times have changed. We had a little decade came along called the 1960s that spawned something that historians now call a cultural revolution. And so over the last 50 or 60 years, we're, we begin to see the fruit of that cultural revolution which is very much like the cultural breakdown experienced at the death of Solomon. Rehoboam was not wise enough to maintain the national unity, and so Israel as a nation fell apart again into factions that warred and squabbled with each other that we can call tribes. We are experiencing today a very similar phenomenon. Once upon a time, when some of the older people in this congregation were young, being an American was a simple thing to define. It meant you were white, it meant you were Christian. That's what Americans were. They were white and they were Christian. Pretty simple. It was a unified concept. That, of course, is no longer true. And all of us are experiencing that now. And we're finding it to be somewhat painful. The United States of America has lost its identity. So the cultural revolution of the 1960s and the subsequent poor leadership since the 1960s is beginning to spawn new and surprising tribal loyalties. You see, everybody in this country is scrambling for some kind of an identity. We're all looking to answer the question, who, who am I? Some are even worse. They're trying to answer the question, what am I? But it really is the same question. Who am I? What am I? Well, for the ancient Israelites, for a short time, under David and Solomon, the who am I was, I'm an Israelite. I'm a member of the Israelite nation. But when that fell apart... Their identity devolved and became, I am a Reubenite, I am a Judahite, I am a Zebulonite, I am a Naphtalite. They had devolved from what a simple answer that they were able to give to something that was more fundamental and rudimentary because of the failure of, of, of excellent, having the, the excellent leadership they needed. Now, as we devolve in the United States of America from a national unity to these tribal chunks, we're not really devolving back to where we came from. So people aren't withdrawing back and, and returning to their instincts and their roots and going back to say, well, I'm an Irish Catholic. A few are, most aren't. They're not reverting back to saying, well, I'm a German Lutheran from Missouri or whatever. Instead, we have new and surprising identities that are being formed. And they're largely confusing. Now, some of them make a little bit of sense. So some of them, for example, we have some of these tribal identities. I'll just give you a couple real quick. We, 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 we could talk about the Cubans of Dade County, Florida. Turns out there's 1.2 million Cubans that live in Dade County, Florida, down by Miami. It's known as Little Havana. In many respects, they're maintaining some sort of tribal identity. You could talk about the Negroes in this country. They're maintaining some sort of tribal identity. And, of course, they're clustering. In fact, I don't know if many of you knew this, but they're clustering more than the Negro population ever has before. 93% of all Negroes in this country live in large urban cities. It's a higher percentage than ever in American history. They're clustering. But we have bizarre identities that are forming, bizarre 
tribes. And some of these tribes are forming because we have new ways to communicate. With the advent of social media, you can have communities that form that aren't really communities the way they used to be able to form. So now we have an LGBTQ, etc., etc., community which forms a bit of a, a tribe within our country. Many of them end up clustering geographically. And so they end up taking over San Francisco, Madison, Wisconsin, or whatever, town or community, where they dominate. And that tribe runs that town. They run the city. Now, the problem for us as, as white Americans or white Christian Americans, as things devolve, a lot of us aren't sure where to go. We haven't figured out that the, this devolution is creating a huge problem for us. And so we aren't really reverting to any tribe. Instead, we are living our lives isolated. Which takes us to the topic that I'm trying to get to now, and I've finally arrived. <laughs> that has a lot of practicality for you and I here this morning. The New Testament church had to recreate their own tribal network. I don't have time to go through the book of Acts, but if you, we did, we would discover that they had to reform, the New Testament church had to form into congregations. And these little congregations were essentially a tribal unit. And they had to build their own religious affinity and loyalty. And they had to build on that loyalty and intermarry among themselves and eventually create a familial loyalty and create their own tribe. You say, well, I didn't see the word tribe referring to in the book of Acts to these churches. They were called churches, weren't they? Yes, they were. But what's, you know what's interesting? If you look at secular history, it turns out that there's several examples of the Roman government who is trying to figure out what to do with these early Christians, some of whom they were persecuting the early Christian churches. They call the early Christians a tribe. A great example of that is a guy named Pliny the Elder who has given instructions from the Roman emperor to take care of these Christians in his territory. And he specifically, in his writings, referred to them as a Christian tribe. Well, it's because they had these same attributes of a tribe or tribalism. And they had to to survive. Now, our problem now is that we're in living in this period of, of devolution from a nation back to tribal instincts. And we can see the nation fracturing. We can see, we can feel, we can sense that things are sort of coming apart at the seams. And not enough of us, too few of us, are figuring out what we've got to do. We have got to find and identify with the tribe. We can't go it alone. So that's why I've entitled this lesson, What is your tribe? Do you have a tribe? Where is your tribe? Do you have a tribe? And too many of us really don't. And if we don't, not only, maybe if we do, we don't understand the importance of our tribe. Our tribe is our means of survival as the decades pass. As the years slip away, and believe me, I'm now old enough to know that they do slip away. <laughs> and you kind of say, well, where'd they go? It's hard for me to believe my oldest child is in her 30s. Seems like she ought to be about 15, which obviously she's not. In no time, she's going to have a 15-year-old. But as the years slip away, we're not recognizing the critical importance of our tribal, the need for a tribe. Because that's what, that's what we're going to have. That's all we're going to have. That's all we're going to have to cling to. Now, you might think, well... Okay, uh, well, uh, I'll tell you what, let me go a little further here. <clears throat> let me get back to my outline instead of rambling. I know I don't have a lot of time, and I've got some important points to make. The bottom line is this, uh, and the central point of this lesson is this. For you and I here this morning, and for those that are listening to me that might not be physically present in this building, 
The only potential tribe that you and I have that we can really go to is a spiritual tribe in which we share a common racial and religious bond. And that is a church community. That is a congregation. So hear me. A congregation, a church community, is the only reasonable alternative you have as the nation devolves, comes apart at the seams, in whatever way that's going to happen. And I don't know how it's going to happen. It's not going to happen the way it did last time. That I can assure you. It never does. But when it comes apart, it's going to be ugly. And you better have a tribe. And you better be thinking about where that tribe is and how you're going to function within that tribe. And you better figure out how to function in that tribe. Because not only you don't just join, you've got to be a part of it. You've got to prove you're a part of it. All right? Now, the evidence, the living evidence that's before me in recent months and years tells me that many of us don't grasp the importance of this topic. And that's why I keep talking about it. I get apparently Pastor Gaiman keeps talking about it. And some of you are a little bit bored with it. But bear with us. Because there's too many of us that don't recognize the importance of this tribal concept. Our local church community. (laughs) Our congregation. All right, now I'm going to give you five critical advantages that, you, that you're going to need to take advantage of. All right, now this is not a complete list. I'm going to run through them quickly. Are you ready? Number one, the advantages of a spiritual tribe is this. We need spiritual communion when we worship. We are designed to worship together. Now, I think I can prove that from Scripture, but I won't take the time to do so. For now, you're going to have to trust me on that. You are not designed to worship isolated alone all by yourself in your house or in your closet or under a tree. You're designed to worship God with other believers. Number two, you need the mutual understanding and the full transparency of a shared worldview. You need the transparency you can have when you converse. You can, shall we say, let your hair down and not worry about, did I say the wrong thing? You need that transparency. You need that mutual understanding in in a shared worldview. Number three, you will need the practical support network for the trials of life that the tribe has to offer. You might say, well, I'm a strong man. I don't need anybody. The day will come well, you will. You say, well, I'm a, I've got a strong family. We've got a lot of brothers and sisters and so forth. Well, that's great. But that might not be enough at times as well. There will be times you will need a larger community. And if you're not part of one, it's not there. And you're going to suffer. Number four, you will need a network for your children. As your children learn and grow and eventually marry. They need a network. That network is called your tribe. It is your church community. It is your congregation. It is your spiritual tribe. And it will eventually, if it's a stable one, will grow into a familial tribe as intermarrying continues with the passing of time. And last, number five, this doesn't seem like it's a serious thing, but I think it actually might be. All of us Look at times for times of simple fellowship and recreation. Recreation and fellowship is a part of everyone's life. For you, it might be riding your four-wheeler. For somebody else, it might be listening to music or square dancing or whatever. The best fellowship you need for fellowship and recreation is within your tribe, within your spiritual community. You need a pool of companions for your recreation. Because if you don't get the recreation here, you're going to seek it elsewhere. And there may be negative consequences for recreating and fellowshipping outside your tribe on a regular basis. Now, those are five advantages I see. You cannot get those advantages without a certain amount of investment. You have to make a certain number of sacrifices for those advantages. And let me tell you just two of the sacrifices. Really, it's one. Well, two. 
Number one, you have to adhere to the belief structure and the lifestyle expectations of the tribe. The tribe has expectations of you. They might be formal and written down, and they may be totally informal, unwritten, but just understood. And you've got to comply with those, or other people of your tribe are going to say, I'm not sure I want this guy around. And you say, well, that's not fair. Too bad. That's life. That's life in a tribe. You want to be part of the tribe, you've got to conform to the rules and the expectations of the tribe, whatever they are. And you don't necessarily get to necessarily pick what those expectations are. You want the advantages? You've got to fit in. It's that simple. Fit in. Fit in. <laughs> Sometimes that means now you're going to have to be willing to accept tribal discipline. Now that tribal discipline might be official and formal, but most of the time, ladies and gentlemen, the tribal discipline is very informal. It is very subtle, but it's real. As others pull away from you, what are they doing? It is the tribe's instincts that are saying, you don't conform and we don't feel comfortable with you and you better start conforming or pretty soon you're going to be isolated from our tribe. And nobody has said anything exactly. It just kind of happens. Does this make sense? Yeah. All right. So you can't get the advantages of the tribe without conforming to the expectations. And we hope our expectations, you know, a biblical tribe, a Christian tribe, a spiritual tribe ought to have biblical expectations. And hopefully they are. Now, most people that find themselves on the outside of a tribe looking in, when they used to be part of the tribe... It's not very often that the tribe has officially kicked them out. That's pretty rare. And it's actually not so much that the tribe has really pulled back, although that happens in an informal way, and you find yourself isolated and say, well, I guess I'll have, I'm out of the tribe. <laughs> often, it's your own poor decisions. Now, I'd like to talk about poor decisions that people make that leaves them or obliges them to leave the tribe in which they do so voluntarily. They voluntarily leave the tribe because of their own poor decisions. Think about it. They've been warned, don't do this, don't say that, don't, whatever. And they keep on doing it and saying it and, and lo and behold, circumstances arise in such a way that they just say, I, I find life in the tribe unhappy for me, so I'm out. I'm gone. I go. Well, typically they don't go to another tribe. They just choose to go it alone. And going it alone does not work well over time. You can't just switch tribes like that anymore. And if you're an American Indian, you say, well, I'm tired of being a Navajo. I think I'd like to be a Cherokee. They just don't welcome you with open arms, do they? Well, it doesn't work that way. And we've got to be wise. We've got to understand some things. So what are the poor decisions that commonly lead people to such discomfort that they leave their tribe or their congregation and go it alone? Well, there's four things. Now, here's what we're going to do as we close. I've got about four or five minutes. It turns out that these four things are rarely theological. Sometimes they are, but rarely. Those are not the top four, based on my observation. I'm going to give you now these four things that cause people to make poor decisions that lead to their own discomfort, to where they finally say, oh, I just don't like this tribe, and I'm out of here. All right, so what are the four things? Well, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read you the four and I'm going to ask you to stand as we close, and I'm going to give you a Bible verse for each one of those four, and you're going to read those verses with me, all right? We're almost done. So you get your Bibles ready, and we're going to flip to a few verses, one verse for each of the four, as we close. 
And I'm going to give you the four. Before I ask you to stand, you can relax for the moment. Just listen, grab your Bible and listen. The first one. Now, none of these are really rocket science. But they're real. And over the years, I see it again and again and again. So here they are. Number one. Failing to forgive offenders within the tribe who have hurt or disappointed you. It will happen. You can't be a part of a tribe and somebody in that tribe doesn't eventually, for some reason, hurt you or disappoint you. You have a duty to forgive. You're not forgiving for them. You're forgiving for your own sake and for the wisdom of the situation. Now, I will give you a verse on that in just a moment. The second reason, failing to follow the leadership of the tribe that God has raised up. God raises up leaders. you got to follow them. If you say, well, I don't want to follow the leader, there's going to be some trouble. Okay? Number three, failing to maintain the personal standards of moral behavior. There are personal standards of moral behavior you got to maintain. And if you don't, it's going to create problems. Big ones. Big ones. Not many secrets inside a tribe. They don't last. If two or three members know, in time you can count on everybody's probably going to know. And it's not because people are necessarily blabbermouths. It's just human nature and it happens. So don't get mad at somebody who shares a secret. Just say, well, that's life. Okay? Make your life transparent so that you're not loaded with secrets. <laughs> All right. And number four, if you allow real anxieties, now these are real and natural anxieties, legitimate, true fears and anxieties that are real, not imaginary, but if you allow them to become so overblown that they will obscure the larger vision that you ought to have, and they whittle away your trust in God. Now let me repeat that. All of us, not a soul here, doesn't have some worry or anxiety that is reasonable and grounded in some reasonable, sensible truism. However, it is too easy to let those anxieties and fears become so overblown that they obscure a larger reality. And they cause you to, they whittle away then your trust in God. Now, I've given you four reasons. I want you to stand, if you would, as we close here in the next couple of minutes. Take your Bible, and I'd like you to turn to the following passages as I reemphasize these final reasons, these four reasons as we close. So these are, the, these are some of the common poor decisions that cause people to say, uh, I'm, not un, I'm no longer comfortable in this tribe, and so I'm out of here, and I'm going to go it alone. That doesn't work well. So why do people do it? Number one, Matthew 18. Please turn to Matthew 18. The first reason is that they fail to forgive offenders within the tribe who have hurt or disappointed you. God tells you to forgive. Matthew 18, verses 34 and 35. It'd be great for you on your own time to read this entire chapter. But let me read. We'll read together. Are you with me? One voice. Matthew 18, 34 and 35. And his Lord was wroth, delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Amen. We are brothers in the tribe. Sisters in the tribe, and we have to forgive them their trespasses. Number two, it's found in Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, the second reason, failing to follow the leadership of the tribe that God has raised up. Now, of course, the leaders aren't perfect. You'll have to wait for the kingdom of heaven to be on earth for that. Meanwhile, this is what we've got. Hebrews 13 and verse 17 says this. 
Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable to you. Now, turn the page to James chapter 1. Turn to James chapter 1. The third reason was failure to maintain personal standards of moral behavior. Let's read verses 14 and 15 of James 1 in unison. James 1, 14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And the final reason has to do with our natural and real anxieties that we allow to get out of control and whittle away our trust in God. Now go to Proverbs chapter 3. If you turn with me to the middle of your Bible, Proverbs chapter 3, we shall read one verse. It's very familiar to you. It's a wonderful verse. Reflect upon it, I encourage you. Proverbs 3 and verse 5, it says, Together, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. So, in conclusion, and you may be seated, I beg of you to value your tribe. Take the steps necessary so that you can be a healthy and fully contributing member of this tribe that I believe all of us will need in the future. Thank you for your patience. God bless all of you.